So that's the one if you're, you're really not interested in having a close relationship with your family members. Just, just go ahead and get them that. For, you, for the exhausted parents out there, right? The next is the, is the uh, crib dribbler. That's fake, by the way. You really can't buy that. But it's a great idea, right? You want a few more hours of sleep, but they're thirsty? Just hook them right up, right? Now, if you're preparing that, that great Christmas meal, but it doesn't look quite right, there's now available, and this is true, edible paint, all right? So you can paint your turkey however you want it. There's lovely brown, golden done. So if you're not a good cook, just paint it. You eat it right up. Looks just fine. And then this is my personal favorite, if you haven't gotten me anything this year. This is the flame-throwing weed killer. Yeah. 100,000 BTUs guaranteed to kill any weed. The English instructions, however, uh, I, I won't tell you where this is made because I don't want to impugn the country, but uh, it says it is for killing weeds, but if you don't hold it in absolutely upright, it is liable to back up and explode. <laughs> so that's a negative, a slight negative feature of the, uh, of the flame-throwing weed killer. I almost showed you the YouTube clip. Go to YouTube and it'll show you how this works. Oh, it's fabulous. Oh, it's just, it's great. So if you're, if you, if you're uh, going to go a little holiday shopping, whatever's open right now, think about those things. So if you have your Bible, let's open. I want to look for a minute this morning at Matthew chapter 1. And just, just two quick points I want to make about this passage this morning. Matthew, unlike Luke, gives us Joseph's perspective on this narrative this morning. And we get more Mary's and more of Luke's as, a, as a, almost a lawyerly, uh, the way Luke He's carefully examined eyewitnesses, and he gives us a more broad-based account of what happened. Matthew is, is looking at this in a slightly different way, and if we pick up where we started with verse 18 of Matthew 1, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That's a whole mouthful in one verse. Okay, so um, in their culture, as, as happens in ours, people end up pregnant before they're married. Their culture was an entirely different matter. The, um, the betrothal was a serious year-long engagement, and during that time you were considered bound together and the law of that they operated under ancient Judaic law. Not simply the law of Moses, you understand. That's you know what we can read. There was law that was had been extrapolated from the law of Moses that dictated in different parts of the culture, Galilee, the northern part of what we know as Israel. Uh, was going to be different from the southern part, how they did this. Was a, there was a cultural mandate based on the law. Galilee's was, was actually much stricter. And uh, it, what she had done, what Mary had done in being pregnant before the betrothal, during the betrothal period, would have been uh, a, a punishable crime. Uh, we don't know exactly if it would have been stoning, but it's a possibility. But it certainly necessitated divorce because uh, the way they interpreted the law at the time was that she was then impure and that you couldn't marry a woman who had gotten pregnant outside of marriage. It was just considered ritually impure. So here we have Joseph who's faced with this dilemma. They probably were very young. 
probably there was not a whole bunch of it wasn't you can't we can't think of a romantic relationship such as we might see today uh, this was something that he was trying to figure out how he was going to respond and he ha really had two options he had uh, divorce was was an option I mean was a necessitated by her action he at this point simply believed that she had been unfaithful to him there was no he didn't at this point uh, she could make any protestation she wanted, but he just figured she was pregnant and now I can't marry her. I can either publicly divorce her, which exonerates me, or I can privately divorce her. The law operated that two or three witnesses could be gathered together in a private ceremony and he could declare what had happened and the, the betrothal would be nullified. He had to pay what was called a bride price. And that, that still happens among some, in some Jewish uh, cultures today, which is basically it was a way that if um, a woman was left at the altar, uh, the, the man either died or he left her, she wasn't left destitute. So the bride price was something, it's not exactly like a dowry, but it had the sense of giving her some security. And so he had to, in order to get whatever bride price he had paid for Mary, he, which was substantial because it, they didn't want the man to leave a woman uh, without any economic uh, security, and so he would have had to divorce her. So he could have publicly done it, spared his own reputation, and just shunned her. But Joseph, what we learn is, as we keep reading, is that he was a just man, and that given his circumstances, he was trying to do the right thing. Her husband Joseph, verse 19, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So he chose the option of private divorce. Again, his own reputation, people could have assumed whatever they wanted because it wouldn't have been known. Remember, the, the place that they lived at the time, they were, uh, while they were from Bethlehem, they lived in Nazareth, both were in the town of Nazareth. They assume uh, it's in the northern part of, of Israel, and that at that time, the, most scholars think it was between 500 and 2,000 people. That's small, guys. Considering large families, let's say, you know, five in a family, that's 100 houses if it was bigger families. I mean, you know, and you know, if you come from a small town, maybe y'all come from smallish towns, everybody knows everybody's business, right? This is a small town and everybody knows. So for Joseph, again, his own reputation, his own ability to make a living as a, as a carpenter, assuming his father would have, was a carpenter and he took on that work, again, it, it has a lot of implications that we don't perhaps think about as we're going through. But the point is, Joseph was a just man. He wanted to do what a, the balance of what the law required in divorcing her so he wouldn't be impure, and then sparing Mary, who he may not have had a lot of feelings for, but he really thought about what would be best for her. So, as we read through, but he considered those things in verse 20. He slept on it, so to speak. And then, it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is in Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means 
God with us. And Joseph woke from sleep as he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So let's look. Joseph was asked to believe something that uh, was without precedent, right? It's impossible in human terms. But Joseph chose to believe God in whatever way the angel came to him in this dream. He knew that this was a message from God, and he chose to believe something that wouldn't have been humanly possible. So that's the first thing, because this morning the Christmas message asks us to believe something that's humanly impossible. That a virgin would conceive and give birth, that God himself would come in human form. It's either not true, it's mythical, which many people in our culture believe, or it's the most important thing that's ever happened. If God, I mean, just if, if you believe it's mythical, just go with me for a minute and assume that God did come in human flesh, would you agree it's pretty important? So this is this is a, a, a crucial question, and Joseph kind of was in our position of having to be told by the Lord, this is how it happened, and he had to make a choice, a human choice, whether to believe something that was hard to believe or not. We're given the same choice, is to believe something that's very uh, humanly, by our own mind's rationality, difficult to believe. I fully acknowledge that. I can only tell you from one who chose to believe it many years ago now, that the life change that it brings has only confirmed to me the truth of what seemed unbelievable at the time. Joseph's righteousness first was in trying to obey the law, but mostly was in trusting that God could do what he said he would do. He continued to show himself a man of character, and even though he had the right to know his wife as a husband would know his wife, he showed himself to be a man in control of his own passions because at that time, during pregnancy, it was considered, again, a ritual impurity. And so as his understanding was he was a man who wasn't ruled by his passion, he was ruled by his obedience. That's something that I think we can take a great lesson from. So we move over to chapter 2 of Matthew, and we've skipped ahead some time because the wise men come after Jesus has been born and is somewhat older. But, um, so here's a little trivia, trivia game for you trivia people out there. So per- perk up if you like this. What, what's the most common place name in the United States? Anybody know? What, the most common place name, like town, city, whatever. You know? See, that's, that's what I thought, too. I looked up. That's, that was the thing. And four, that's number two. That's very good. That's the number two. Four, Springfield. They have 41 Springfields in the United States, all right? Pales in comparison to number one, which is Washington. All right, 88 Washingtons, including seven in Wisconsin alone. Now, that's not confusing. Two Port Washingtons, right, in in Wisconsin, and one Washington Island, right? But let's not get too smug because there are over 1,700 San Jose's in the world. So we don't even compare. So talk about getting confused. So I, I tell you that because... Um, it says in, in this par- second part of the birth story about the wise men coming, we have a prophecy from the prophet Micah, who lived 800 years before. And he talks about that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, there are two Bethlehems in Israel. 
mean, I've known that. Sometimes when you hear this story read, especially when it comes from the book of Micah, this little difficult to pronounce word, Bethlehem Ephrathah is how it's said in Micah, which is a part of Judah, the southern part. So here's a, a map, and we'll show the two Israels. So up north, I want you to see Nazareth is in black there. It's in the, in the tribe of Zebulun. Uh, if you'll remember under Joshua that Israel was divided by the tribes. And so in the north, just about five to six miles, they think, because the, the, these towns, Nazareth, Nazareth is still there. Bethlehem is kind of a ruin now, and they're, they're trying to, they've excavated. But this place is about five to seven miles north of Nazareth. It's mentioned in Joshua 19, talks about it. It talks about the, the hill country of Zebulon. And it says, the sons of Perez were of Hezron, the family of the Hezronites, and of Hamzul, the family of the Hamulites. And it goes on to describe the, uh, all the different tribes. And it says, the third lot came up from the tribe of Zebulun, according to the families. And it's, these towns are mentioned, and the last of the five towns is Bethlehem. So, you know, in some senses, it would have been easier from God's perspective to simply have them come from the northern town of Bethlehem, right? But 900 years earlier, Micah prophesies that uh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and he specifies which Bethlehem he's going to be born in. He says it's going to be Bethlehem of Judea, which, if you'll notice, is just a few miles south of Jerusalem. So what I want you to see in this is that the human choice that Joseph made to be a just and righteous man has to be balanced by the sovereign choice that God made of where Messiah would be born. Because 900 years prior to these events, Micah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says he's going to be born in this town. Now, it is not a town that's even named that has any significance. If in the, in the uh, prophet Micah, if you want to try to find Micah, it's buried deep in the middle of the Minor Prophets. And in chapter 5, verse 2, as Micah's prophesying during a time, he prophesied during the time when Isaiah was prophesying, where the uh, northern kingdom had fallen, the southern kingdom was going to fall. They, this was a time of exile, and Micah was not only prophesying the sins that Israel was committing and telling them why they were going into exile, but he was giving them hope as to what God was going to do to rescue them. So he gives this... Uh, message of what's coming for people who are in exile, who are in despair. And he says in verse 2 of, of chapter 5, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So, it's a very small town. It's insignificant as far as Judah towns go. But 900 years earlier, God says, this is the place he's going to be born. There was actually another king born there. Uh, in 1 Samuel verse 16, 1, the Lord said to the prophet Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go, for I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. You see, that's where David was born, was Bethlehem, this little insignificant town who has two kings.
coming from it, and that the ruler of Israel was going to have the same heart, shepherd, warrior heart, that David had. Think of the circumstances God had to align to get a poor man and a little pregnant girl betrothed, probably recently married, but just, just on the way, from Nazareth down to the southern Bethlehem. He had to get Caesar Augustus to make a decree that all the world should be taxed. See, your taxes go for something good. It's, he got them moving because that was in, in one way or another Joseph's hometown, that his lineage, they asked that you go back, or they didn't ask, they demanded that you go back to the place where your lineage was from, where your family line was from, and that's apparently where Joseph's family line was from, so that they had to travel back there. They had to make sure, God had to make sure that it was at the time of her conception, now, I, can't, I don't know about you, but my first two children were both two weeks late. And in, in that, we were waiting and waiting and waiting. And if, if you don't induce labor, you just wait until they come, right? For those of you who have given birth, it can be that those days, those weeks, if they're early or late and you don't know. But it wasn't until Mary and Joseph arrive in the exact town that the prophet Micah says they're going to as a symbol to us that another shepherd warrior king has been born, that Jesus is there. Joseph's choice, human choice, to be righteous and obey and believe God for the impossible combined with a sovereign God who moves heaven and hell, who moves circumstances that they couldn't ever have conceived of, pun intended, the conception that they had, they didn't know that this child that seemed so amazing was going to be the Savior of the world. But they were moving under the hand of a sovereign God. Righteous choices lead to God's sovereignty being fulfilled and expressed. So it is for you and for me, because we have choices now to make to be ruled by our passions and ruled by what we want or to be ruled by operating according to what God set forth. And in that, God's sovereign purpose somehow gets worked out in ways that we can't conceive of in the moment. As David is being coronated in 2 Samuel 5.2, this is what's prophesied over him. David, you shall shepherd my people Israel. You shall be the king over Israel. And remember what is said in Matthew as, as, again, we're drawing to a close with these words. But Matthew draws upon this. and You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Jesus Christ became that shepherd not to free them from Roman rule, but to free them from sin. So it is with us. A choice to believe the impossible 
opens the door for us to be free from all the sin and all the entanglements that that sin provides. And sin comes in innumerable forms. Jesus Christ says, I'll take that sin on me. Fully God, fully man, Emmanuel, God with us, lives a perfect life, lives as a human, as God designed. The only one who didn't bear the weight of sin because he never sinned, took the weight of our sin upon his shoulders. Merry Christmas. That's the gift. For those who will receive that gift, now just like any gift, if it's unwrapped under the tree, you may not know it's for you. Right? You ever had a Christmas gift where the tag's gotten lost and you don't know who it's for? Right? You shake it. You hope somebody knows who it's for. Well, our part in this is not to clean ourselves up. Our part in this is not to know all the answers and figure everything out and every question. Our part is to unwrap the gift and to open it. And in doing that, it's simply a matter of faith and of saying, God, I receive this gift. I believe the impossible. I receive the gift you've given. And in that, the freedom that comes with that, I can only speak from my own heart that it changed my life and continues to do so. It's appropriate on Christmas Day to celebrate not only in singing about his birth, but to celebrate his death because it's a package deal. Christmas without Easter, sentimentality. Easter without Christmas means that God didn't come in the flesh, and so there is no sacrifice because it's only when he becomes like us that he can be known. So we will celebrate, and we're going to celebrate a little differently than we normally do, because I'm going to just I'm going to start in a minute after we pray. I'm just going to start. I'm going to pass to each uh, side here uh, some wafers and some wine. It's our custom just to dip a wafer in the wine. So if, if you would take the bread and hold it for the person next to you, hold the wine and allow them to dip it in. You can take a minute and pray, and and we we're small in number, and we'll sing a few carols. But this is appropriate. For anyone who believes in Christ, you don't have to be a member of Living Hope. This is a family meal. If you'd rather not take, that's fine. No one's going to point that out. Just hold it for the next person and just pass it along. But if you say, I believe, then take that wine and say, this is for me. Because it is unto you that is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And in taking that wafer and dipping it in the wine, you're saying... Lord, I received your gift for me today. This is my unwrapping. Lord Jesus, I thank you that on the night you were betrayed, you took bread. And when you'd given thanks, you broke it. And you gave it to your followers and you said, take and eat. This is my blood of the new, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And then after supper, you took a cup of wine. You gave thanks. You gave it to them, and you said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, we understand that these are the gifts of God and therefore the people of God and we take them and receive them to ourselves with thanksgiving. 
because this is the greatest gift anyone could receive to be freed from the penalty of sin. Thank you for your gift to us, Lord Jesus. Amen.